Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a man can keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longings for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Good morning, Covenant Hope Church. What a great delight to bring to you God's Word this morning. Let me just pray that as we hear the preaching of the Word again, that God would convict our hearts and show us truth in His Word. God, we do thank you, Lord, for your Word. We thank you for what we have just read. And we pray now that as we hear your Word being preached to us, that you would change our hearts, our minds, and our lives for the glory of Jesus. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Words have great power, don't they? You know, throughout history, powerful words spoken with conviction have changed the course of this world. They have given hope in dark times. They've given courage when hearts were failing and they have driven people to do seemingly impossible feats. Words have done it. Winston Churchill's powerful speeches helped rally the troops when they were weakening, and that ultimately led them to winning victory in World War II. Martin Luther King's impassioned cries for equality changed the face of the United States of America. Words are powerful because they are able to enter our hearts, pierce our souls, and effect change there. How much more powerful are they then, words, 
if they are spoken by God himself. This morning, we find ourselves in Psalm 119, which really is an amazing poem of someone who is amazed by God's word. The book of Psalms is really a songbook. You know, there was a time when people used to sing the Psalms in their regular worship gatherings. But this is a hymn book that is actually written by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to be able to worship God. And so really the book of Psalms is an amazing treasure for us. You know, many people who have struggled to feel anything in their relationship with God have often said that reading the book of Psalms have been extremely helpful for them. See, the book of Psalms, it can stir up our minds, our imaginations for God and his word. Now, to be honest, and I have to confess, Psalm 119 is a little intimidating because of the length of it. And if you have read it, you may feel that it is a bit repetitive. It can seem like he's saying the same things over and over and over again. But you see, the psalmist, if you take time to understand and study, you'll notice the psalmist is careful about the way that he has constructed the psalm. This psalm is meant to affect our hearts to love God and his word slowly. You know, C.S. Lewis, who is himself a master of words, this is what he says about this psalm and the way the psalm is written. He says, this poem is not and does not pretend to be a sudden outpouring of the heart like some others. It is a pattern, a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours for the love of the subject. So, in order for us to really appreciate Psalm 119, we need to read it slowly, read it meditatively, and read it, may I say, loudly. So let me encourage you to take some time, either this week or in the coming weeks, maybe one Saturday morning, set aside one hour to just read all of Psalm 119 that way. I assure you, you will be rewarded greatly. Well, this morning, we, I'm not going to preach to you all of Psalm 119, but uh, we are going to look from verses 1 to 24, which are really three sections in this psalm, and there are three things that I would like for us to see. So if you're taking down notes, here are the three points of the sermon. Number one, we're going to see blessings for the blameless. Number two, we're going to see fleeing sin by delight. And number three, we're going to see comfort in afflictions. Let me repeat that again. Blessings for the blameless, fleeing sin with delight, and finally, comfort in afflictions. Now let's look at the first point. Blessings for the blameless, which we see in verses 1 to 8. Please follow along in your bulletins, or if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Now, I had a tough time to nail down a structure for the psalm. So, you know, whenever we study the Bible with our students, one of the first questions we ask them is, how would you divide this passage? 
And I tried my best, I have to confess, to find a way to divide this passage. And I'm sure many other people have succeeded and done better than me. But here is a simple way to divide this passage. It's really divided into two, I think. Verses one to three, we see truths about the person that is blameless. Truths about the person that is blameless. So we see what is the kind of person who is blameless, what does he look like? That's verses one to three. And really the rest of the psalm is a prayer based on verses one to three. In this psalm, there is a lot of talk about walking. There's a lot of talk about ways and paths. It's a repeated theme. Have you heard the saying, it's the journey, not the destination that matters? I don't know where I heard it or who actually said it, but I've heard it said to me many, many times. It's the journey, not the destination that matters. Can you think of any occasion where that is true? I can think of maybe one or two. It's a helpful quote when the destination does not really matter. <laughs> but for the Christian life, what matters more is the destination. The end really matters, the goal, which is what will it be like when we meet God on that judgment day? And that affects our journey, our walk right now in this world. In the Bible, we read that it's those who know that they will be blameless on the day of Christ that live according to the law of the Lord. It's those who know that they are right with God and will be counted as righteous on that judgment day that live a life now that pleases God. You see, in that way, Christianity is different from every other religion because every other religion says you cannot know the end. You cannot know what that day will be like. You cannot be sure whether God will accept you or count you righteous. The best you can do is hope. But how wonderful it is to know the future, isn't it? You know, there are lots of things that we would love to know about our future, right? We wish God would have told us, like who we are gonna marry for those who are not married, or what job we'll have, or what I really want to know is how many kids will we have? But there is one thing he has told us very clearly, and it is the most important thing about our future. And that is, what will it be like on the day of Christ? What will the judgment day look like for us? The good news we read in the Bible is that those who believe in Jesus will be saved on that day. Those who don't, it will be the beginning of an eternity of suffering the wrath of God for their sin. The reason why those who believe in Jesus will be saved on that day is not because of the good works that they have done. You see, the Bible is clear about one thing about all of us. is one way we are all similar, everybody in this world, and that is that we have all sinned. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That is the condition of this world. And it is into that world, to those people and for those people that Jesus came. He comes into this world and he says, 
I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. There is none like him, like Jesus. Jesus perfectly kept all of God's laws, all of his commandments. See, like us, Jesus was tempted by Satan, but unlike us, he didn't give in to sin. He kept God's word. And we read in God's word that God was pleased with his obedience. You know, everything that we read in these first few verses in Psalm 119 about the one who walks blamelessly, it is perfectly seen in the life of Jesus. So if you want to know what does the law of the Lord look like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what does the word of God look like, look at Jesus. He became righteous and blameless by perfectly obeying all of God's laws. His obedience was so great that he was willing to even die, die on the cross where he would meet the judgment that we deserve for our sins. There the innocent was counted guilty by God because he willingly bore the burden of our sin for us. See, the amazing thing about Jesus' obedience is that he wasn't just obeying for himself. He was also obeying for us. That is anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus for their salvation. The most amazing thing in all of human history, most amazing event in all of human history is when Jesus rose from the dead. It was the most amazing event for all of Jesus' disciples. So much so that the disciples could never stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus when they shared the gospel. Because Jesus rising from the dead meant that Jesus didn't just die after making promises to save us, but he died and rose from the dead. Meaning that those of us who are trusting in Christ are saved and will be saved when he returns. See, Jesus saves his people this way. Not only are they now not guilty because Jesus died for them, but they're also declared righteous because Jesus lived for them. Not only are they given a clean slate because their record of sin has been erased, but they, their record is filled with the righteousness of Christ for them. This is what it means for one to be declared blameless in the sight of God. And it is for those who are blameless that blessings flow from God. Let me just pause there and say, friend, if you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, well, first thing is we love that you are here. But if you are here and you long to be right with God, I just want to say that God has made a way through Christ for that to happen in your lives. The Bible says you need to only repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone for your righteousness. We'd love to talk to you more about this. Please come find us. We can help you think about what this means for your lives. For those of us who are followers of Christ, how wonderful it is that we know what it will be like when we meet God. Ephesians 2.21 says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless 
and above reproach before him. That is our future as Christians. And only in God's word do we know that truth. And you see, that truth has profound effect on the way we live our lives right now. Now, knowing that we are going to be presented blameless before Christ motivates us now to seek God with all of our hearts, to keep his precepts, to keep his statutes, his testimonies, to walk in his ways. Think of it like this. You know, when a child is adopted into a family, he or she gains all the privileges immediately that comes with being part of that family. Relations, inheritance, the name. But the child is coming from outside and is fundamentally different and behaves different to everybody else in the family. But because this child loves the parents and more importantly, the parents love the child, he or she will seek to learn what pleases them and will strive to become more like them. And over time, they will grow to become more and more like them, so much so that after a while, you won't be able to tell the difference. See, it's the same in our walk with Jesus. Knowing that God loves us, pushes us to keep God's word. So when we read verses like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who believe. Or when we read in Zephaniah 3 that our God delights over us and even sings over us because we are in Christ, you know, we hear this, we no longer go to God's word out of fear or we no longer think of obedience to God with a sense of burden. But we approach God's word with joy, longing to be more like Jesus. See, the question many people have when they read Psalm 119 is this. Is this really possible to live this way? In other words, isn't this an impossible standard? Is it really possible to walk blamelessly like the psalmist is asking us to? The answer is yes. It's possible to walk in the law of the Lord, to seek him with all of our hearts. It's possible only for those who are in Christ. See the word blamelessness? Oftentimes when we hear that word, what we think of is sinless perfection. But that's not necessarily how that word is always used in the Bible. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it's the way of life of a Christian who is following God. It refers to the direction of their lives. So here's one place you'd see it. Job chapter one, verse one. This is what we read about Job. The man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, obviously Job had sinful nature within him. He wasn't sinless, but he lived a life that followed God. And that becomes clear as we read the book of Job. But what does it look like for someone who is applying Psalm 119 in their lives? What does that life look like? It's not someone who's perfect, but it is one who by God's grace is repenting of their sin daily and they are seeking to live according to God's word. They still battle sin daily in their lives, but they're striving hard to make progress in their lives spiritually. These are men and women who are walking closely with Jesus, who are seeking to look like him more and more every day. They love God's word. You know why? Because they love Jesus. These are men and women who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, transforming them as they come to God's word, 
to believe and obey God's word in their lives. The second Peter says that in God's word, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything for life and godliness has been granted to us already in Christ. How encouraging it is for those of us who believe. Well, friends, how, let me ask you, how are you doing in terms of keeping God's word in your lives? Are you making a serious effort to study God's word? Are you making a serious effort to also apply and obey God's word in your lives? Are you someone who is teachable when you come to God's word? In other words, are you quick to apply everything that you learn in your Bible study or everything that you hear in the sermons week after week? Are you working to be steadfast in keeping God's statutes in your life like the psalmist says? Steadfast means not to be two-faced. You know, not one face Friday morning and another face the rest of the week. But are you letting God's word, are you consistent in applying God's word in all of your life? Whether it be in public or private. Whether it be when you're with your parents or with your Christian friends. Are you being steadfast in keeping God's word? Friends, let me encourage you. God's word is powerful. God in the gospel is the greatest encouragement that we could possibly have to obey God's word in our lives. Well, the psalmist talks about what it means to walk blamelessly, but now he turns his thoughts to how God's word can help us flee sin. And that's the second point, fleeing sin with delight. And we see that in verses 9 to 16. Well, the question the psalmist poses for us is, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now, obviously, this is not just for young men. It is for young women, old women, old men, for everybody. I think uh, it's very likely that the psalmist, we don't know who the psalmist is, but it's very likely the psalmist is a young man. And so it's, it is his way of asking the question, how can I keep my ways pure? Well, what we learn from the psalm is that in order to keep ourselves from sin, we need our hearts to delight in God's word. Delighting in God's word helps us flee sin. Do you know what a strange thing that is, by the way? To delight in God's word. You know, Christians talk about this experience of delighting in God's word, and that is true. But do you know how weird it sounds to others? It sounds like that kid in the class that goes to the teacher and says, teacher, I love your rules. Teacher, you get the price of being the best teacher because you give me the most rules. You see, God's word is not the same as those rules for someone who is in Christ. And that's because when God has called his people to be in a relationship with him, he has changed their relationship with God's word as well. There's this amazing prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that actually would take a whole sermon to unpack. But this is what we read. God says about what, would, what it will be like in the new covenant. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's an amazing prophecy that is already fulfilled for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's for anyone who would trust in him. Anyone who is in Christ. God's law is written on their hearts. So they delight in God's law because God has changed their hearts. You know, one of the great privileges I have in my job is uh, to study God's word with new Christians. It's so exciting to see new Christians study the Bible because the amazing thing is to see the change that has happened in the way they read the Bible after their conversion. They go from usually being checked out or uninterested to suddenly wanting to spend all their time learning God's word, reading it, digging deep into it, not having enough of God's word. It's watching people go from death to life. Their relationship with God's word changes when they come to Christ. Now, this is true for all Christians. All Christians delight in God's word. While that is true, there is a choice we make every day. And that is the choice between whether to delight in God's word or to delight in sin. For you cannot have both. See, sin, my friends, if we leave unchecked in our lives, has a blinding effect on us. It can cloud our vision of God. It can stop us from seeing God and enjoying God as we come to his word. Sin promises us deep pleasure, but we know from even our own experience that all sin does is leave us feeling guilty, ashamed, distant from God. We want to run away from God when we indulge in sin. But God always comes to us in his word, pouring his grace upon us through Christ. That is the difference between God's word and sin. Let's learn from the psalmist. He's guarding his heart with God's word. He's storing up God's word in his heart. He's memorizing scripture. The psalmist is working hard, really hard, to study God's word. See, those who delight in God's word the most are those who know God's word well. Because you cannot delight in something that you don't know. Look at how much the psalmist delights in God's word in verse 14. He says, as much as all the riches in the world. Imagine that. Imagine the most expensive homes, the most expensive cars, not hard to imagine here. If you had all the money, all of it, and you take it to the psalmist, and the psalmist would say, I would gladly trade it all for God's word because of the superior delight that God's word brings my soul. You know, we will be in heaven forever delighting in God. There will never be a moment when we will be tired. There will never be a moment when we will be bored or feel like we are done. For all eternity, we are going to be delighting in God. But now, we can have a taste of that. It's nothing like what we will experience then. But even a taste of it is enough for us to flee sin. As one author says, the delighting is not merely 
A scholar's delight in discovering something new, but it's a disciple's joy in obedience. It's not merely a scholar's delight in discovering something new, but it's a disciple's joy in obedience. God's word is for all people, whether it be for a child, for old, for the learned or the unlearned. God has revealed himself in his word for all to enjoy and delight. Well, Christian brothers and sisters, you want to know how to fight sin? You want to know how to keep yourselves pure? Take time to study God's word. Make sure that you are spending enough time studying God's word and spend every, spend every day some time in God's word, reading it and applying it in your life. And when God's word shows you sin in your life, you should be quick to repent. Repent of it in light of the cross of Christ where Jesus died. Jesus died for all of your sins. You know, repentance always leads to joy in God and his word. Even from my own experience, true repentance always leads to joy and delight in God and his word. And delighting in God and his word helps us repent of a sin. It's really a cycle. So friends, don't do this alone. Attack sin by reading God's word with others in the church. You know, we all need to be in accountability relationships where we have friends asking us good questions so that we are bringing our sin out into the open. But let me encourage you to take it one step further. A good accountability relationship is one where you are studying God's word with each other. Where you're not only confessing sin, but you're also studying God's word with one another. Because we need God's word to kill sin. We need to see Jesus clearly in the scriptures. We need to delight in the gospel to flee sin. The psalmist talks about God's word, how it can help him keep him pure. Finally, now we'll consider how God's word gives us comfort in affliction. We can see that in verses 17 to 24. You know, suffering, afflictions, and trials are all part and parcel of living in this fallen world. Everybody experiences it to some degree or another. But there is a special kind of suffering that is reserved for those who are followers of Jesus. Jesus promises that in his word. But no matter what type of suffering it is that a Christian goes through in their lives, you know, it's not always easy to know what to say to comfort, to comfort those who are suffering. God's word provides relief for those who are suffering. Notice the kind of suffering the psalmist is facing here. The psalmist is experiencing persecution. So in verse 23, the leaders, princes are plotting against him. In verse 21, we read that he's experiencing insult and scorn for obeying God's word. And in verse 17, we get the sense that he is actually clinging to his life. He's having a near-death experience as he's meditating on the psalm, as he's writing it. In verse 17, notice what he prays for. He prays that he will live. He's asking God for life not only because he wants to live, but notice it is because ultimately he wants to keep God's word in his life. See, for the psalmist, the reason to live is to keep God's word in his life. Verse 20, 
we read from his prayer that he's overwhelmed with longing for God's word always. And he pleads that God would open his eyes to see the wondrous things that are in his word. You know, trials often cause Christians to run to God's word in desperation, often. And the reason is because God's word gives us perspective. You know, when you're in the middle of suffering, what you want most, what you pray for most, is that God would remove the pains that you are experiencing now, the suffering that you are going through right now. Now, I want to recognize that, you know, there are some of you who are going through suffering right now, and some of you are actually going through persecution because you are following Jesus. And I want to say it's a good prayer to pray that God would remove the suffering in your life. In fact, the psalmist actually prays that in this psalm. But God's word gives us something else. It promises us far greater blessings, makes us far greater, far greater promises than anything in this world. For instance, God's word promises us an eternity of endless joy of communion with God. God's word promises that in the resurrection, there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin. See, when we come to God's word, God's word pulls those things that are, seem far away and draws them close to us. We get a better vision of the things that are most important. And when our hearts take hold of these things, we will find ourselves rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. You know, there are lots of examples of Christians who have found great comfort in the middle of this suffering, reading God's word. In her book, The Hiding Place, many of you might have read this, Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian was helping and protecting Jews from the Nazis when both she and her sister, who was also a believer, Betsy, was caught and thrown into a concentration camp. And you know, throughout their time in the concentration camp, the thing they longed for most and protected most with their lives was their secret copies of the Bible. In fact, while at Ravensbrück, which is where they were, which was the most notorious women's concentration camp, they conducted a Bible study in the concentration camp. Listen to how she describes this experience. She says, it grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. But as the rest of the world grew strong, stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason why the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of health and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, which means like poor and homeless people gathered around a fire. We gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. She says, I would look about us as Betsy, her sister, read the Bible, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it, we experienced it minute by minute, poor, hated, and hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be, we are. She goes on to say, life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. That's really powerful. You know, in times of suffering, God's word is the only thing that can provide us lasting comfort. Nothing in this world can soothe our souls like God's word can. If we are in Christ, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we can all experience the same joy the same delight, the same motivation to live our lives according to God's word, and we can experience the same comfort that the psalmist does in God's word as he goes through suffering. Covenant Hope Church, in this day and age where there are so many distractions, I pray that we would all recognize the amazing gift that we have in God's word and we would hold fast to it. Study it, memorize it, Speak it to one another, sing it to one another, and bury it deep in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly for us to understand you, to know you. God, we thank you, Lord, that we have come to know Jesus in the pages of scripture. Thank you for revealing himself him to us. Father, we do pray that you would cause us to walk closely with Jesus by applying the truths in your word carefully in our lives. God, we pray all this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, He will hold me fast.